I tell people that one of the great blessings that has been mine in evangelism is I get these opportunities to travel across the United States, travel internationally. I've been to 20, I think, 27 different countries, uh, some of those countries multiple times. And uh, it can be discouraging as you look at the broad, visible spectrum of Christianity because there is so much compromise out there. There are so many bad churches. Uh, there are so many moral failings amongst big-name preachers and uh, commercialism and self-promotion and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we see it, right? But what we don't see are the thousands of churches out there that are sound, that are good, that are led by faithful men um, who love the Lord, who labor in His Word, who shepherd the sheep, care for the flocks. Uh, These men are not being... You know, they don't have the spotlight. They're not being asked to speak at the big conferences. They're not being interviewed. The, no one knows about them. But they're there. They are out there. And they are all around the world. They are all around the world. I've, I've been to some of these churches and just a very small fraction of them. But they are out there. Uh, God does have his people out there. He does have his churches. He does have his faithful shepherds. And so the, the broad visible spectrum may be discouraging, but be encouraged, dear ones. We have like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world. And um, so it is, it's truly been a, a blessing of mine. And I, I want to I also say that I have a tremendous amount of respect for our faithful shepherds out there. And uh, I'm so very grateful for them. And uh, I want to commend the men that you have here um, Matt and Thomas and Chris, um, I lost him, he's somewhere around here, but uh, uh, these are good brothers, these are good men, they love the Lord, they love you, and there are certainly challenges in what I do in evangelism, to be sure, but I don't face the kind of challenges that a pastor faces. You know, I can come into a church and I can spend a couple of days, I can make everybody mad and then I'm gone, you know, (laughs) but... uh, your pastors, your elders, and by the way, those terms are interchangeable, pastor, elder, and shepherd, um, they're interchangeable, but um, they have to put up with you folks, so uh, pray for these men, pray for their families, and uh, they're good brothers, so I, I really am thankful for our faithful shepherds out there, so, all right, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and we will begin. Father, thank you so much for this time, I, I thank you for I thank you for your church. I thank you for the shepherds. I thank you for the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who gather together every Sunday all around the world. They love you because you have loved us first. They love each other. They love your word. They have a a hunger for your word. They have a desire to live lives of obedience to the glory of Christ our King. And we pray now that as we go into this a time of worship. We often think of music as worship, and it is, but the, the pinnacle of the worship is the preaching of your word, and we pray that you would be pleased in this, in this time of worship. We pray that, that Christ would be honored. I, I pray that your Holy Spirit would sanctify us in the truth of your word, that, our, that, that the word of Christ would richly dwell within us, as Paul said to the Colossians, so that we may live lives of obedience to your glory, to your honor, that we may carry the name of Christ well, Lord. Sanctify us. Uh, May we be conformed into the image of your Son more and more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to the Gospel of Luke. And we will be in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Luke 16, 19 through 31. This is a message I have entitled Sola Scriptura, Sola Scriptura, and I trust that will make more sense to us as we kind of walk our way through the text here, but this is the rich man and, and Lazarus. So Luke 16, 19 through, the, through 31, I'll read the text, and uh, then we'll go back and kind of walk our way through this. Jesus speaking. 
Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he might warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded even if someone were to rise from the dead. May God bless the reading of his word. This is not a warm, fuzzy passage of Scripture. You're not going to read about this text of Scripture in Scripture in um, Chicken Soup for the Soul or anything like that. Uh, you will never hear Joel Osteen uh, reference this passage, I can assure you. Uh, it's not a warm and fuzzy passage of Scripture. On many levels, it is disturbing. It is graphic. It is jarring. But I trust as we work our way through this text, we will see that this is actually an encouraging passage of Scripture to us. Now, let me set the scene here just a little bit. There, there is some debate as to exactly what this is. Some believe that this is a real event in history, that the rich man and Lazarus were real historical events. And right now, as we speak, the rich man is languishing in the lake of fire. Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom, that these were real historical figures. Others believe that this was a parable that Jesus taught. And there is some weight to both understandings of this text. Um, it is situated amongst other parables that Jesus was teaching. And so that lends a lot of weight to the fact that this is a parable. However, if it is a parable, it is unlike any of Jesus' other parables. Because in this text, Jesus gives us specific names. And he does not do that in any of his other parables. But he does here. He names Moses. He names Lazarus. He names Abraham. And so if it is a parable, it is quite unique. And I believe by the inclusion of these names, Jesus is driving home to us the very stark realities of what happens to someone when that person dies in his or her sin. This is a, this is a very sobering passage of Scripture. Now, to set the scene here, flip back probably just one page in your Bible. Look at chapter 15. Verse 1, as chapter 15 opens, it says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. So he began to teach them in parables. So as chapter 15 opens, we see a large group of people who had gathered around Christ. We see tax collectors, sinners of every kind, Pharisees, scribes. So a, a large group of people had gathered around Jesus to listen to him, and then he began to teach in parables. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 16. It says, now he was also saying to the disciples. So as chapter 15 opens, Jesus is addressing this large crowd. 
But as chapter 16 opens, Jesus turns his attention away from the crowd, and now he is addressing only his disciples. He's no longer talking to the scribes or the Pharisees or the sinners and the tax collectors. Now he is addressing only his disciples. But look at verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of what? Money. Were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. So even though Jesus had turned his attention away from the crowd, he was now addressing only his disciples. Notice who never left the scene. The Pharisees were still there. They were still there, kind of hanging around in the background, eavesdropping on what Jesus was saying. They never left the scene. And the Bible says that the Pharisees were lovers of money. And so this text, this account, this parable that Jesus gives would have absolutely scandalized the Pharisees. So let's walk our way back through it now. Verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. The picture here is one of extreme opulence. This man was extraordinarily wealthy. It says he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. Now, purple was a very difficult color to manufacture 2,000 years ago. Today, no big deal. 2,000 years ago is a different story. The color purple was actually derived from the oil of snails. And so to make a purple garment was very, very labor-intensive. So if you had a purple garment... You are a man of means, okay? You had wealth if you had a purple garment. But notice it says that he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. So apparently this guy didn't just have one outfit of purple. He had a whole wardrobe full of purple garments, fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. The picture here is one of extreme opulence. This was the Bill Gates of the ancient world. I mean, he had everything that the world could offer. Fancy clothes, a wardrobe full of them, undoubtedly a nice palatial residence. Undoubtedly, he had the choicest food. He had servants waiting on him, hand and foot. I mean, he had everything that the world could offer. This guy had arrived. Okay, he had, the world was his oyster. He had everything that the world could possibly offer. But verse 20, And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs from the rich man's, falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. The pic picture here is the exact opposite. The rich man had everything. Lazarus had absolutely nothing. Now let's look at Lazarus. He was poor, and it's, notice it says that he was laid at the rich man's gate. Lazarus didn't go to the rich man's gate on his own. He was laid there. Lazarus was picked up, carried, and laid at the rich man's gate. And dear friends, wherever Lazarus was laid, that's where Lazarus stayed. He was crippled. He could not even move about on his own. He was poor, he was crippled, completely immobile, and it gets worse. Covered with sores, open, oozing, infected, diseased sores. And longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. He was poor, he was crippled. His skin was diseased. He was starving. Undoubtedly, Lazarus looked like a skeleton with skin draped over it. Diseased, open, sword skin at that. This is a graphic, graphic picture. And then, as if it couldn't get any worse, it says, besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. And friends, when we read dogs in the New Testament, we shouldn't think about some little happy cocker spaniel 
This wasn't some little frou-frou dog that you put a jacket on, a little bow in its hair. These weren't pets. These were wild dogs. And they were licking his sores not to comfort him, but they were tormenting him. He couldn't get away from them. This is a jarring, jarring picture. And you could not have two more polar opposites. The rich man with everything that the world could offer. Lazarus with absolutely nothing, completely and totally helpless at death's door. We don't know the rich man's name. But we do know the poor man's name. Lazarus. And Jesus includes his name for a very specific reason. Lazarus' name means God helps. It's derived from the name Eleazar, which literally means God helps. And this is is the rendering of, of Eleazar, Lazarus, God helps. That's what Lazarus means, God helps. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you think that God helps those who help themselves is in the Bible. It's not. Bill O'Reilly thinks it is. I heard him one night several years ago. He was talking to some priest on, the, on his program, and he said, my, he said, my favorite Bible verse is God helps those who help themselves. Not only is that not in the Bible, it's not even a biblical concept. Friends, God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who understand that they cannot help themselves. Lazarus could not help himself. There was nothing that Lazarus could do for himself. Lazarus was completely at the mercy of others to stay alive. And dear friends, just as helpless as Lazarus was physically, you and I are that helpless spiritually. There is nothing that you and I can do for ourselves. There is nothing that you and I can do to ingratiate ourselves to a thrice holy God. All of us are sinners. All of us have broken the laws of God. Every single one of us. And yet most people today think of themselves as a good person. Well, I'm a, I'm a good person. I guarantee you if you were to go up to 100 people at random on the streets of Denver and ask them, are you a good person? 99, if not 100% of them, will say, yeah, I'm, I'm a good person because what we like to do is we like to compare ourselves to other people. You know, and if I were to compare myself to Osama bin Laden, Jack the Ripper, Pol Pot, Mussolini, Hitler, yeah, well, I'm, I'm a pretty good old boy. You know, I've never done any of those things. And people think, well, yeah, maybe I've done a few things wrong, but I've done more good than I've done bad. And so so as long as my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, one of these days when I die, I'll go to heaven because I'm a good person. But friends, God does not evaluate our goodness by comparing us to other people. He evaluates our goodness by comparing us to himself. And none of us compared to God is good. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All of us have sinned and gone astray. All of us are liars. Thou shalt not lie. Every single one of us is a liar. All of us are. Let God be true and every man a liar. You are a liar. I am a liar. Thou shalt not steal. All of us, I would imagine every single one of us, at some point in our lives have taken something that does not belong to us. The value of the item that we take is irrelevant. If you have taken something that does not belong to you, you're a thief. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And friends, taking God's name in vain is a whole lot more than saying OMG or one of those derivatives. It includes that, to be sure, but it's a whole lot more than that. Anytime we claim to be Christians and carry ourselves in such a way that does not reflect well on Christ, we're taking his name in vain. Anytime we sin, whoever sins, it's taking the Lord's name in vain. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Oh, I've never done that. Don't let yourself off the hook too quickly. 
Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lust, you're an adulterer in your heart. If you've ever looked at another woman or another man or whoever, anybody that's ever looked at another person with lust, you're an adulterer. And friends, all of us have broken God's laws thousands of times throughout the courses of our lives. We sin against God in deed and in word and in thought. We've broken his laws thousands of times. And just like when we break laws on earth, there is a penalty to be paid. How much more so when we break the laws of God? But because we have sinned against God who is eternal, the punishment of that sin is also eternal. And there is no amount of good works that can make up the debt that we owe to God, the debt that our sins have incurred. If I were to kill somebody, go into a convenience store and shoot the clerk and kill him in cold blood and then flee the scene, but the the law catches up to me and I was arrested and I had my day in court and they laid out all the evidence. They took the tape from the security camera. They played the tape and all the, the evidence was there and I was found guilty. And the judge said, Justin, you've been found guilty of murder I'm about to pass sentence on you. Do you have anything to say for yourself before I pass sentence? What if I were to say this? Well, judge, I think you're a good judge. And because you're good, I think you should let me go. And judge, you know, I've only killed one person on one day. I've lived thousands of other days throughout my 48 years thus far. I've never killed anybody on any of those other days. Just this one day, this one person on this one day. So I think my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. What if the judge said, oh, wow, Justin, you know, I've never really thought about it that way. You you make an interesting point. Um, Yeah, I'm convinced um, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, and I'm a good judge, and so uh, I'm going to let you go. You're free to leave. See you later. Have a nice day, and I walk out the door. Would that be a good judge? No, that would be a terrible judge. A good judge must punish crime. God is the ultimate good judge, and he must punish sin. If God does not punish sin, then he would not be good. And so many people are hoping that the goodness of God will get them off the hook. The goodness of God will seal their fate. And there is no amount of good works that you can do. I cannot tell that judge, Judge, I'll I'll tell you what, I'll go work at the soup kitchen to make up for this. Not going to work. Certainly not going to work with God. Our works are as filthy rags. There is nothing that we can do for ourselves. There is nothing that we can do to earn God's favor, to earn our place into heaven. God is holy, holy, holy. He must punish sin. Lazarus was helpless. You and I are helpless. We are at the mercy of God. Verse 22. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Death is the great equalizer. Dear friends, it does not matter how much you have or how little you have. It does not matter who you know or who knows you. One of these days, death is coming to us all. Ain't none of us getting out of this thing alive. Death is coming to us all. That is an appointment we will all one day meet. It is appointed man wants to die. And then the judgment. Death's coming to all of us. And once we die, we will go to one of two places. Now, undoubtedly... No surprise when Lazarus died, but apparently it was quite the surprise when the rich man died. I mean, Lazarus was at death's door anyway. I mean, no surprise there. But apparently the rich man died at about the same time as Lazarus did. Undoubtedly, death came as quite the surprise to the rich man. I mean, he was living it up, joyously living in splendor every day. Life was good And yet death came for him, apparently, about the same time that it came for Lazarus. Death is an appointment we will all one day meet. And dear ones, none of us knows when that appointment is coming. Sometimes that appointment can come 
at the most unexpected of times. None of us is guaranteed to see the sunrise tomorrow morning. When death comes, you must be ready. There are no second chances. Now, when the rich man died, undoubtedly he had a very nice funeral. A lot of pomp and circumstance. Undoubtedly his body was well cared for. His body was undoubtedly wrapped in some very nice linens and anointed with various spices and perfumes and uh, laid in a very nice ornate tomb because only the wealthy could really afford nice tombs in this day and age. And so there were probably a lot of important people there. Very nice funeral for the rich man. No fancy funeral for Lazarus, though. No important people at Lazarus' funeral. No care for his body. In fact, in all likelihood, what happened to Lazarus' body when he died was the same thing that happened to all of the bodies of the poor and the diseased in this time. Undoubtedly, Lazarus was picked up, his body was picked up and carried outside of the city gates and dumped in a pile of garbage to be consumed by fire or the elements or wild animals or some combination of all those things. No fancy funeral for Lazarus. No flowery speeches over Lazarus' body. No important people there for Lazarus. But notice in verse 22, notice who his pallbearers were. It says that he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. He was carried away by the angels. You know, dear ones, I don't really give it any thought what my funeral is going to be like one of these days. I really don't think about it. You know, I don't, I don't care what you do with my body. I'm not going to be in it anyway. You know, you can cut my toes off if you want to. I don't care. I won't know it. I don't care... The only thing that I would ask about my funeral is that the gospel be preached. Other than that, I don't care. I just want the gospel to be preached. But you know what? I want these pallbearers. I want to be carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And I want to hear those words. Well done. Good and faithful. Doulos. Slave. I want these pallbearers. And the only way to have these pallbearers, the only way that you will know that one day when your appointment with death comes, that you will be carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom in the presence of Christ, is to be in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. To be adopted into the family of God through the merits of Christ. And that only comes when we repent of sin, turn from sin, and place our trust in what Jesus did for us on the cross. We have no righteousness on our own. We must have His righteousness. We must have His righteousness that is alien to us. And that righteousness comes when God grants repentance from sin and grants us faith in Christ. There is salvation in no one else. You cannot earn this righteousness. Lay your works down. They will profit you nothing. They are as filthy rags before a holy God. The only way to have these pallbearers is to repent of your, of your sin and place your trust in what Jesus did on the cross. His perfect life given as a perfect sacrifice to perfectly satisfy the perfect wrath of God of God. That is the only way to have these pallbearers, to be carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, to pass from death to life. Verse 23, in Hades he lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out, and he, saw Father Ab and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. 
There is so much here in verse 24. There is so much that condemns the rich man in verse 24. He cried out, said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I'm in agony in this flame. Do you know what the most terrifying thing about hell is? God. Because he's there. He is there in his wrath. I hear so often preachers describe hell this way. If you die in your sins, you will be eternally separated from God. That's not entirely true. That's half true. But it's not entirely true. Those who die in their sins, when they go to hell, they will be separated from God relationally. There is no relationship there. There is no love exchange there between the condemned and God. There is no fellowship there. They are separated from God relationally. But judicially, they will be in the presence of God Forever and ever. Read Revelation chapter 14. Verses 9, 10, and 11. Those who are in the lake of fire, it says they will be tormented day and night in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Christ. In the full, undiluted fury of God's wrath will be poured out on the ungodly will be poured out on those who died in their sins there will be wailing weeping gnashing of teeth the worm will not die and the fire will not be quenched when I think about hell my circuit breakers trip I just I can't comprehend it I can't comprehend it hell is so horrible because God is so holy we have sinned against one of eternal value, eternal worth. And the punishment of that sin is also eternal. We should not soft pedal hell. And sometimes I wonder if we really believe what we say we believe about what happens to people when they die in their sins. Sometimes I wonder if we really believe that. Do we really believe that people who die apart from Christ, die in their sins, go to this place where the worm does not die, where the fire will not be quenched, where there will be wailing and weeping, gnashing of teeth. Do we really believe this? And if we do, why are we not out in the highways and the hedges telling people how to escape this place? Why do we not share the gospel with more people? And tell them how to escape this. If we, how much do you have to hate someone to know that they are dead in trespasses and sins and yet not offer them the gospel, the one thing that can save them from this place? Notice too, it says that he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, Father Abraham, the rich man died, found himself in the lake of fire, which will, Revelation 21, when those eschatological events take place, will become hell with a, a proper capital H, but, but it's the same basic thing. He found himself in the lake of fire and somehow had this ability to see across this great chasm, and he saw Abraham, recognized him, and called him by name. Even gave him a title of respect. Father Abraham. What does that tell us about the rich man? The rich man was not some atheist. This was not some guy that worked for the ACLU. This was a religious man. This was a man who had been taught the scriptures. This was a man who had a head full of knowledge. He recognized Abraham, called him by name, gave him a title of respect, Father Abraham. This was a religious man who knew 
the Old Testament who knew the Scriptures. What's he doing in hell? What's he doing in the lake of fire? Even though he had a head full of knowledge, that head knowledge had not penetrated his heart. And dear ones, I am the first one to champion studying the Word of God. Fill your mind with the Word of God. Be sanctified in the truth of God's Word. Let the Word of Christ dwell richly within you. Study doctrine. Study theology. Do all these things. I champion that absolutely. Just make sure that your head knowledge has penetrated your heart. Because hell is going to be full of religious people. Hell is going to be full of professing, note my use of the term, professing Christians. There's going to be pastors in hell. There's going to be theologians in hell. There's going to be seminary professors in hell who have a head full of knowledge, but that head knowledge has not penetrated their heart. How do we know it hadn't penetrated the heart of the rich man? Notice who else he recognized. Sin Lazarus. It's not that the rich man didn't know that Lazarus had been laid at his gate. Oh, he knew it. He knew Lazarus was there. He even knew his name. But he would not lift his finger to help Lazarus on earth. But now, you see, he wants Lazarus to lift his finger, dip it in water, put it on his tongue to help him. He had a head full of knowledge. But that head knowledge had not penetrated his heart. Has your head knowledge penetrated your heart? Has there been a change in your life? Do you love what God loves? Do you hate what God hates? Do you have a desire for the truth of God's word? Do you have a love for the brethren? And do you have a godly sorrow over sin? A godly sorrow over sin. The Bible speaks of two different kinds of sorrow over sin, and it's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul says that there's a worldly sorrow that leads to death. And there's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance unto salvation. And dear friends, the, the chasm between a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow over sin is a chasm as wide as the chasm is between heaven and hell itself. What is a worldly sorrow? A worldly sorrow is nothing more than a guilty conscience. A worldly sorrow is the kind of sorrow that says this, what would happen to me if my sin were exposed? What would be the consequences to me? It's not that most people won't acknowledge that they're sinners and they've done things wrong. Oh, they'll acknowledge that. But they don't grieve over it. Their only concern about sin is what would happen to them if it were exposed. What would be the consequences to me? What would be the consequences to me if my sin were laid bare, if other people saw it? What would be the consequences to me if people knew what I was looking at on the computer? But if I could get away with it, you see, nobody would know about it. I'd run right back to it. That is a worldly sorrow, and a worldly sorrow leads to death, eternal death. People with a worldly sorrow try to cover up their sin because they don't want the consequences of it. But if they could get away with it, you see, if nobody would know about it, they'd go right back to it. That is a worldly sorrow that leads to death. And everybody has that. But there's another kind of sorrow over sin, and that is a godly sorrow. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 that a godly sorrow leads to repentance unto salvation. So what is this godly sorrow? A godly sorrow over sin comes when we grieve over our sin. We grieve over our sin because we understand that our sin grieves God. A godly sorrow is this sorrow that is vertically oriented, not horizontal. It's vertically oriented. We grieve over our sin because we understand that our sin grieves God and we do not want to grieve Him. 
A godly sorrow is the kind of sorrow that David had in Psalm chapter 51. You remember that David had committed horrific sin. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then he committed murder to cover up his adultery. And then Nathan came to him and pointed his finger at David. And he said, you are the man. And God used Nathan to break David of his sin. And David cried out in Psalm chapter 51 against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. My sin is ever before me. You are blameless when you speak. I have no defense. He grieved over his sin because he understood that his sin grieves God. This is one of the true hallmarks of the new birth of regeneration when we grieve over our sin because we know that our sin grieves God and we do not want to grieve Him. I am not teaching here sinless perfection. We as Christians can and do sin. 1 John 1, 9 If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That was written to a church. That was written to believers. So as Christians, yes, we do stumble into sin, but Christians don't swim in it. We don't enjoy sin. We don't relish sin. We don't look for opportunities to sin. We don't plan it out. When we as Christians sin, it grieves us. And we grieve over our sin because we understand that our sin grieves God. This is a true hallmark of the new birth. It is good and it is right to warn people to flee from the wrath to come. It is good and it is right to warn people of hell. We should be doing that. But dear ones, just as much as we should want a Savior from hell, we should want a Savior from from sin. There are a lot of people out there who want a Savior from hell. They want to get out of hell free card. But there's not nearly as many people who want a Savior from sin. If your sin does not grieve you, then you need to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. If you want a Savior from hell but not a Savior from sin, you have a Savior from neither. The rich man had a Savior from neither. And notice, notice even in the lake of fire, notice that Lazarus is still nothing more than his errand boy. No apologies from the rich man to Lazarus. No, Lazarus, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Lazarus, that I did not help you on earth. Please forgive me. The fires of hell do not work repentance. No sorrow. No grief. No apologies. The rich man is more hardened now than he was when he was alive on earth. Verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. Death is the great equalizer and now we see the great reversal. On earth, the rich man had everything that he could possibly want. Lazarus had nothing. Now that death has come, the rich man is languishing in the lake of fire, wishing for just a single drop of water to cool off his tongue. Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom in heaven in the presence of God. The great reversal. Now, it would be a mistake to assume that the rich man went to the lake of fire because he was rich and Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom because he was poor. That is not the point of the text. There is nothing inherently wrong with being wealthy. If you have worked hard and God has been gracious to you to allow you to keep some of the fruits of your labor, wonderful. Praise the Lord for that. Use it for the glory of God. Nothing wrong with being wealthy. Nor is there inher anything inherently honorable in being poor. Each man went where he was spiritually prepared to go. But the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, whoa, this would have scandalized the Pharisees because the rich man was, after all, rich. And he was 
a religious man. He knew the scriptures and he was rich. And so that was a sure sign that God was showering his blessings on the rich man. That was a sure sign that the rich man was in good with God. Nothing could have been further from the truth. Nothing could have been further from the truth. That is one of the dangers of the prosperity gospel. Oh, well, I profess to be a Christian, and look at what I have. God, Kenneth Copeland, undoubtedly, right at this moment, is thinking, look how faithful I am. Look what God has given me. Unless God grants him repentance in the pretty near future, because he is 84 years old, he's going to be joining this other rich man. There's this great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. When we die, dear ones, one of these days when we die, we are all going to go to one of two places and we will be there for all of eternity. There are no second chances. There's no such thing as purgatory. That is a complete fabrication of the Roman Catholic Church. That place does not exist. We'll go to one of two places and we will be there for all of eternity. No second chances. Be ready for your appointment today. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Finally, the rich man is thinking about somebody besides himself. Send Lazarus, still, Lazarus is nothing more than his errand boy. Send Lazarus to my father's house because I've got five brothers so that he can warn my five brothers not to come to this place. Finally, the rich man is thinking about somebody besides himself, his brothers, but it's far too little and it's far too late. And reading in between the lines here a little bit, apparently if Lazarus had come back from the dead and he had gone to his father's house to warn his five brothers, apparently the five brothers would have also recognized Lazarus, so it's not looking real good for the five brothers either. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Moses and the prophets. Moses and the prophets had been dead for centuries. How could his five brothers possibly hear Moses and the prophets? This is how. This is how they hear Moses and the prophets. They have Moses. They have the prophets. They have Isaiah. They have Jeremiah. They have Daniel. They have Ezekiel. They have Elijah and Elisha. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. No, Father Abraham. No, that's not enough. That, that's not enough, Father Abraham. But if, if they could just see someone come back from the dead, then they will believe That'll get their attention. If they could just see Lazarus come back up from the dead, that'll make them repent. If they could just see a miracle, if they could just see a sign and wonder, that'll get their attention. If they will not hear Moses, if they will not hear the prophets, neither will they believe even if someone were to come back from the dead. Dear friends, there is an inherent power in this book that is found nowhere else. Not in miracles, not, not in signs and wonders. And there's this whole swath of Christianity, of professing Christianity that we've been talking about the last couple of days that have this emphasis on signs and wonders. And they think that's the power of God. The real power of God is signs and wonders, not preaching. It's signs and wonders, miracles. Angel feathers falling out of the sky. Gold dust showing up in our Bibles. and Gold dust on my clothes. And wow, look at the gold dust on me. That's, that's the power of God. That's not the power of God. That's a trick. That's a cheap trick. It's a deception. And Todd White walking around the streets and lengthening people's legs by about a half an inch. It's not the power of God. That's a trick. This is not the power of God. Some of what you see in this movement is satanic deception. But it's not the power of God. They're lying signs and wonders. And then you have this whole other 
swath of professing Christianity, not so much in the signs and wonders, but they're more into the seeker-sensitive approach to doing church. We're going to make church fun. You know, we've got to attract the world. And so the only way to attract the world into our churches is to make our churches look, well, worldly. And so we're not going to talk much about sin because the world doesn't want to hear about sin. That's a Debbie Downer. We're not going to talk about sin. We're not going to talk about holiness or repentance. I mean, the world doesn't want to hear that. So, so we're going to make church fun. We're going to make it hip. We're going to make it cool. We're going to have the strobe lights and the fog machines, and we're going to have the fancy rock band up on stage, and we're going to sing worldly songs to draw the world in. And then we'll give them a little ditty of a feel-good kind of message, and we're going to tell them that Jesus can make their life better. Jesus will he'll give you your best life now. He'll help you to better manage your finances and to have good relationships. And Jesus will help. He'll improve your life. And so that's how we're going to attract the world. So we've got to water down the gospel. Throw a little Jesus lingo in here, here and there, to make it kind of look a little bit churchy. Some, some veneer of Christianity. But we're not going to talk about sin. We're not going to call people to take up their crosses and deny themselves. Nope. The world doesn't want to hear that. So we're going to make our churches look like the world. We're going to draw them in. And some of these pastors would get up and they would tell you, if you asked them, do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Oh, yes, yes, we believe the Bible is the Word of God. No, you don't. No, you don't. Because if you did, then you wouldn't have your church look like a three-ring circus. If you did, you wouldn't feel the need to entertain goats instead of feeding sheep. And that's what these churches are, by the way. They're goat farms. They're not feeding the sheep, as Charles Spurgeon said. They're entertaining goats. And every few years, some new fad comes down the religious pike, doesn't it? The evangelical pike. There's these fads that come through every, every two or three years. A new fad comes through. Oh, when was it, 20 years ago or so, right around the year 2000, early 2000s, it was the prayer of Jabez. Remember the prayer of Jabez? Lord, expand my territory. Everybody's praying, praying the prayer of Jabez. They had the prayer of Jabez, you know, in a frame, and they put it on their wall. Anybody still praying the prayer of Jabez today? Of course you're not. Why not? Because it was a fad. You know, then it was the Passion of the Christ, this movie by Mel Gibson. And all of the evangelical world just went gaga over the Passion of the Christ. And there were these, in fact, Roman, I mean, uh, um, Mel Gibson He'll tell you that he didn't even make the movie initially for Christians. He made it for Catholics. And he was stunned that the evangelical world flocked to this movie in the numbers that they did. It shocked him because he didn't even make it for evangelicals. He made it for Roman Catholics. But the evangelical world just went gaga over it. And churches would rent out entire theaters, and they would all go and pack out the theater to go see The Passion of the Christ. And there were claims of miracles. People were being healed in the in the stadium seating as they were watching the passion of Christ and just amazing miracles were going on going on and I I heard one pastor can't recall his name but he said he said the passion of the Christ is the greatest evangel the greatest evangelistic tool of all time dear friends I would submit to you that this book is the greatest evangelistic tool of all time not some dopey movie and it's like evangelicals they want to be accepted by the world so badly and so they try to look cool and try to come up with something that looks cool and fatty and, and to make the world like us. And now we're trying to curry the favor of leftist political people with the social justice movement and evangelicals, even some in our circles, are being swept away by the winds of the social justice movement because we want, we just got to have this, we have this inexplicable need for some reason for the world to accept us. You know, we're okay, world. We're not as goofy as you think we are. And, and so we're being swept away by the winds of social justice. That'll, that'll make Christianity, that'll broaden our tents. We're not supposed to look like the world. We're different. 
That's what the definition of a church is, the ecclesia, those who have been called out of the world. We live in the world, but we're not of the world. And if your church looks like the world, leave. Evangelize the world. Be kind to the world. Yes, absolutely. You know, and it should not surprise us when lost people act like lost people. That's what lost people do. The world out there, they're not our enemy. They're the, they're the mission field. But when we come here, friends, we're not supposed to look like them. We're supposed to be different. The church is unique. It's the bride of Christ. And all these churches that want to look like, why in the world would we want to look like what we've been supposedly saved out of? The Word of God is the most powerful evangelistic tool of all time. Flip over with me quickly to 2 Peter chapter 1. This is a powerful text for those who believe that the gospel just is not enough, that we've got to dress up the gospel, we've got to Use clever tools to reach people. We have various experiences. Look, look at what Peter said, beginning of verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased." And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter is talking about the transfiguration, Matthew 17. Peter, James, and John were with Christ on the mountain, and all of a sudden, right in front of their eyes, Jesus was transfigured. Moses and Elijah appeared on each side of him. The glory that Jesus had with the Father before the world was that had been veiled in his flesh, that glory was peeled back a little bit, and they saw Jesus transfigured in his majestic glory. They heard the voice of heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And whatever experiences that charismatics think they may have had, I guarantee it doesn't begin to approach this experience. But look at what he said about it in verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, made more certain. What prophetic word? This prophetic word. He was talking about the scriptures. We have the prophetic word made more sure, made more certain. What was more certain to him than even seeing the second person of the triune Godhead transfigured in front of his eyes in hearing a voice from heaven. What could possibly be more certain than that? This is the most powerful evangelistic tool of all time. You're holding a copy of it in your lap. Not some dopey movie. Not, some, not the latest religious fad to come down the pike. Not the latest... Kendrick Brothers movie or any of that stuff. This is the most powerful evangelistic tool of all time. Paul says in Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'll close with, with this. I suppose every preacher, every, every, preacher, every evangelist has um, an airplane story. You hear airplane stories a lot from preachers. And, uh, and I've got a number of them, but one that stands out in my mind in particular. Um, seven, eight years or so ago, I was flying somewhere, and I honestly don't even remember where it was now, but I was on a flight. Because of my handicap, they let me uh, pre-board. I'm usually the first one onto the plane so I can kind of get to my seat and you know get my stuff put away so I'm not having to stand in line, or really so I'm not in the way of everybody else coming on. Uh, so I got on the plane first, and my seat on this particular flight was in the very last seat, the very last row. I was back there in the tail, 
you know, by the bathroom. And uh, I had an, an aisle seat. And so the stewardess got my crutches and she, you know, put them in the overhead. And so I'm sitting there. And then right after that, the other passengers start filtering on. And so I'm just sitting there, you know, just kind of casually watching folks come on the plane. And, and uh, I look down the aisle and, and there's this old man walking down the aisle. He had a cane kind of hunched over in his back and uh i noticed the baseball he was wearing a baseball cap and i noticed the cap that he was wearing it was a navy blue baseball cap and in big gold letters on the on the front wwii veteran world war ii veteran and i've always had a little bit of interest in history and so uh, i saw that old man and i just said a quick prayer so lord Please let him sit next to me. And wouldn't you know it, he came all the way down that aisle. His seat was right next to me. And so he came in, he sat down, and I, you know, let him get his stuff settled a little bit, his cane put away and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, I introduced myself. I, I, I said, uh, my name is Justin. I shook his hand. I said, what's your name? He said, Hi, Justin, my name is Fred. And I said, well, Mr. Fred, I was calling him Mr. Fred. That's my southern upbringing. But I said, uh, I said, Mr. Fred, it's nice to meet you, nice to meet you. And so we made some small talk, you know, where are you going, this kind of stuff. I don't even remember now. Uh, but then after a little bit, I said, Mr. Fred, I can see from your hat you're a World War II veteran. He said, yes, I am. And I said, well, my grandfather was also in World War II uh, he was in Europe. Were you in Europe or the Pacific? And he said, I was in Europe. And so he just started telling me about some of the things he experienced in World War II. He was a soldier. He was in infantry. He was in the Battle of the Bulge. And he started telling me about these stories, and he was in trenches, hearing the explosions going off and the bullets zinging over his head in the heat of battle. And after he talked about that for a while, I said, Mr. Fred, did you ever wonder what would have happened to you if one of those bullets had had your name on it? And he said, yeah, Justin, I did. And I said, well, Mr. Fred, one of these days all of us are going to die. When that time comes for you, do you know where you're going to go? And he said, no, Justin, I really don't. And I said, well, Mr. Fred, can I share with you what the Bible has to say about that? And as long as I live, I'll never forget what he said to me in response. His exact words were, I wish you would. I wish you would. And so for the next several minutes, I, sh I shared the gospel. I told him how we are all sinners, gave him the law of God, helped him to understand that he was a sinner, that he deserved the wrath of God. I told him who Jesus was, son of God who came to this earth, fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life, having never broken any of God's laws. And then Jesus willingly laid down his life on the cross. His life was not taken. He gave it. And I told him how when Jesus was on the cross, he bore the wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God that burns against our sin. Jesus took it upon himself and satisfied it died on the cross, three days later, bodily raised from the dead, proving himself to be who he said he was, God in human flesh. And I told him, I explained to him repentance, faith, the whole thing. And I said, Mr. Fred, does this make sense to you? And he said, yes, Justin, it does. And then he said, I've never heard that before. I mean, this man at the time was in his mid-80s probably living in the United States of America, I've never heard that before. He later told me he grew up Roman Catholic, but he never heard the gospel. I've never heard that before. And I asked him, I said, Mr. Fred, do you have any questions? And he did. He had a couple of questions, and so we talked about those and talked for several more minutes. And, and he assured me again, he said that this made sense. And, and now, I did not say, okay, Mr. Fred, now what I want you to do right now is say this prayer. Repeat after me. I just asked him if he had any questions. He did. We talked about it. I shared the gospel. 
And then Fred said, Justin, I want to thank you for sharing that with me. He thanked me. And then the lady in the seat in front of us, she kind of did her head back like this, and she said, and I want to thank you too. I was listening to every word you said. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. The power of God is the gospel, sola scriptura. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. For the glory of God alone, as recorded in his word alone. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time and pray that as your gospel has been preached, that the saints would be edified, encouraged. Lord, may we all have a renewed confidence in your word that is not only authoritative, it's not only inerrant. It is sufficient for everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness, sufficient for everything that we need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The power of God is the gospel. We thank you for that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We hope that you have been ministered to through this week's exposition of God's Word. If you would like more information about our church and services, please visit our website or email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Lakewood Bible Chapel.